welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, your host, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master. In the last interview, that was episode 166, we had a panel discussion with innovators at companies using value innovation to discover what customers really want before building a product. The panel participants talked about a 10-step process they used, but we didn't really go into the details, and we're going to fix that now. This discussion provides the details for each of those steps, as well as some additional resources for you. To learn the 10 steps, I invited Dick Lee back. He's the founder of Value Innovations and also is a long-term practitioner of the Value Innovation Method. In the discussion, he refers to some diagrams, which are in the show notes. You'll find them at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 167. And I think you'll find referring to the diagrams are really helpful as you listen to the interview, if you can. Also, I want to tell you about a webinar I'm doing with AIPMM, the Association of International Product Marketing and Management. And it's just in a few days, Friday, March 16th, 2018. It's titled, Make Great Products, Tools to Get Ideas, Select Ideas, and Build a Business Case. In the webinar, I'll introduce you to seven innovation systems, 18 ideation methods, the one best approach for creating a business case, and a single framework for turning ideas into great products. And I hope you can attend. Register for the webinar at theeverydayinnovator.com slash great. That's G-R-E-A-T. So it's theeverydayinnovator.com slash great. Now, to the interview on value innovation. Hi, Dick. Welcome back to the Everyday Innovator podcast. Chad, it's great to be here this morning. Just last week, the interview that uh, was just before this last week, we had the pleasure of talking to two of your customers about how they've applied this thing called value innovation. And that was really exciting to hear how what a difference it made to these companies in bringing innovations to customers. I thought that as we were doing that, there might be some people going, gosh, I really want to know the details of this. Tell me the steps involved, because the the guys talked about these 10 steps. And that's what we're going to do now, is walk through the 10 steps. And step one, and everyone uh, listening right now, make sure you go to the show notes for this episode that was in the introduction to this, to look at the graphic as we go through this to help make sense out of this. Step one is called Define Project Mission and Objectives. Probably a good place to start. Why don't you tell us about that one? So, Chad, this was so obvious to the, to us in our workshops, but we didn't even cover that. We assumed that companies would, in fact, know or project teams would know what the project mission and objectives were. And more and more, we came across teams, maybe the teams have been in existence for two, three, four, five years. And none of those team members were part of the original project setup. So they didn't know what they were. And because of that, we felt that it was critically important to go through what you and I would describe as pretty routine, mundane things of, so what is our mission? What are the objectives? Who is the project team leader? Who are the team members? When do we start? When do we end? What resources do we have? What's in scope and what's out of scope? And mm-hmm. and we found that what's in scope and what's out of scope is very, very helpful to team members. 
so that senior management says, uh, we want you to work in this area, but we don't want to work, have you work in another area. And I'll give you an example there of a company called American Vanguard. They make biocides, pesticides, and fungicides. They had a project uh, to develop a modified nematicide. And when I was with them, I said, well, that's wonderful that you're doing that. I don't even know what a nematicide is. And they said, well, Dick, it's easy. It kills nematodes. And I said, I still don't know what you're talking about. It gets better. It gets better. And, uh, and uh, so they told me what a nematode was. It's basically a very small thing. You can't even see it, but it eats the roots of plants and vegetables. It's a problem, for example, in raising corn. And they said, what we want to do on this project, because what we want is a better system for eliminating nematodes in Costa Rica, which is a large banana growing area. What we want to do is to do a much more effective job, but we do not want to change the active ingredient. In other words, the nematicide we're using right now works perfectly well. The problem is that with water runoff, it goes into rivers and streams and kills the fish. Hmm. So it's very, very effective. But we do not want you to develop a new molecule because by the time we go through the regulatory process, it'll take us 10 years, and we don't have that kind of time. What we want to do is to change the delivery mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we inject, rather than spraying it around the roots of the trees, we inject it into the trunk of the banana tree or whatever, but, or change the formulation. So. It was critically important on this project to define what's in scope and what's out of scope. So it gave very clear definition to the project team what they should work on and what they should not. Okay. So, so this first step borrows from project management disciplines, like building a project charter. Exactly. Excellent. We, we, we need to understand collectively for the people working on the project what it is we want to accomplish and make sure we're focused on the right things. So that makes yes. good sense. To, to you and I, that would seem like, well... Yes, that's pretty fundamental. That's what we need to do. But to assume that everybody on the team knows that is probably not a good assumption. Yeah, we all got to be on the same page. Good. So step one, getting set with the project mission and objectives. Step two, you have defined the value chain and identify the most important customer, which we call the MIC, the most important customer. Yes. And this goes to the very heart of... Who is your most important customer? And most people in the world of B2B assume that their most important customers are their direct customers. And to make that assumption is probably 99% wrong most of the time. Yeah, and by direct customer, you you mean the end user of the system. No, no, the person that you sell your product to. So if I'm making sulfuric acid and I sell sulfuric acid to a customer, okay, I assume my most important customer is the person buying sulfuric acid. Okay. It probably is not because the end product, whatever it is, sulfuric acid was used in processing or formulating the new chemical or whatever it is, is maybe seven or eight steps down the chain. Yeah. And in a B2B context, the person often buying as a procurement agent in you know, larger companies, and they don't have a whole lot of interest in, in the specifics of this. No, they don't. As long as they know, so what's the specification that I'm required to meet? What's the quality reti- required? Purchasing agent will use that quality definition. 
and the specification for the product itself and beat up on you on the price of sulfuric acid. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's their job. Instead, we need to identify the mix. So how do we find the most important customer? We need to identify the mix. So we, uh, I de we develop the value chain. So what's the value chain? It, it looks at you, starting with you. It looks at all the buying, selling, and using transactions between you and the ultimate end user. When it, in the chemical industry, that could be eight or nine steps long, mm -hmm. literally that long. And in order to identify the most important customer, we take those steps. So it might be something as simple as we sell to a formulator who produces this, this product that has the nematicide in it. They sell it to a purchasing agent at a company in Costa Rica. There's an operations guy who actually uses the product, and then there's an operator who's actually applying that, all of those steps would be identified in that value chain. And we would ask three questions. First question is, if there's a problem with your product, service, or offering, who's responsible for fixing it? Number two, if there's a problem with your product, service, or offering, who stands to lose the most financially? And the third question is, who sees the value? In some instances, you will get, and you put an X in the box in this template. Well, imagine a template where on the left-hand side, you have each one of the steps in the value chain. You have the three questions in columns two, three, four, and you now put an X in the box, which, which uh, identifies if there's a problem with the product, service, or offering, who's responsible to fix it, and an X goes in that box. And many times, we don't use one X. We'll use two or three Xs because there are degrees of who's responsible okay. for fixing the problem. So an engineer working in R&D, maybe working with quality, maybe working with manufacturing to in fact resolve the problem. And it's not exactly clear out of those three, who is it? But there's clearly a central figure there that says, we got a problem, uh, we need to fix it. Okay, so step two, we're defining the value chain. And in the process of identifying the steps uh, of getting to the the customer using the system, uh, the, the actually end user, how that happens. We're trying to identify the most important customer in those steps in that chain, because that's who we need to focus our efforts on serving the most. Exactly. And those are the people, those most important customers are the people that we are going to interview in three rounds of contextual interviews. So that's a step coming up. Is there anything thing we do before we do the contextual interviews? Yes, there is. It's a step three. Okay. And I will share with you that some companies don't like step three and they don't do step three. Uh, I like step three because it forces you to think about the problem you have in hand. So step number three is to develop an as-is value curve. And you and I talk every, fairly regularly about a book called Blue Ocean Strategy, and you're mm -hmm. going to find value curves, or they call them strategy canvases littered throughout the book that shows you what a value curve is. Mm -hmm. And what it does is to break down the product or the service or the offering into elements of performance. Some people prefer to call those attributes. They have a better feeling for an attribute. But an example of an element of performance could be ease of use. 
And in using ease of use, it's very important to understand what do you mean by ease of use. And in many instances, we require at the client break ease of use down into its own value curve. So you define maybe in 10 or 11 different attributes or elements of performance what you mean by ease of use. Right. Yeah. And we need that specificity so we can create, you know, some measurable means around it. Exactly. Oftentimes these projects start with, well, we're going to increase the ease of use of our product. Well, what is it our customer really determines to be increasing the ease of use to them? Exactly. Exactly. And, and, the value curves, the combination of as is and to be, we're going to look at those and we're going to look at the most important elements of performance to the most important customer and work on those top three or four. We can't work on typically, we will say, limit the number of elements of performance or attributes to 12 or 15 max. The reason for that is you can't work on 12 or 15. You can work on three or four. Right. And expect to complete that within a reasonable period of time. If you work on 15, we'll be here 10 years from now, still not finished. And these elements of, of performance are indeed those things that are important to the MIC, the most important customer, that convey value to them. And some of these may be currently unmet needs. In this process, we might might uncover things that aren't currently being met that would provide value. That's absolutely correct. And And those unmet needs are going to be identified in step four which is the first of these three rounds of contextual interviews. And those are steps four, six, seven, and 10. So there are three one-hour interviews with a pair of most important customers. We find that if you interview two most important customers at the same time, the value that comes out is probably 2x that you would get if you just interviewed one. So you're doing these interviews, these contextual interviews, you're spending an hour just over the phone typically? Yes. And with two mix, so our most important customers, is it important that they know each other, not know each other? Uh, It's not important, no. Okay. We've had situations where an electrophysiologist, for example, one in Oregon and one down in Southern California never met each other. And after three rounds of interviews, became very good friends. Excellent. The guy from Oregon came down to sail with his new buddy off Newport Beach in his yacht. The the people you bring together through contextual interviewing. Yes. So, and give us, uh, you know, I don't want to go into the details on contextual interviewing, but what's a couple of questions you might be asking during these interviews? The first and the most important in the first interview in step four is what keeps you awake at night? It's all these questions. We only ask six. They're very broad brushed open-ended questions. You have no idea how they're going to respond. The next question might be, what do you expect the biggest challenges to be uh, in the field you're operating over the next five years? So very, very broad brushed. You have no idea where you're going to be one hour from now. And it points to the importance of selecting the right lead interviewer to conduct this to conduct these contextual interviews. You do not want a low KI index person, curtain adapter innovator index. These are typically engineers, maybe finance people who want to know what is our strategy, uh, what are our policies, what are our procedures, what are the meeting, what's the meeting agenda, what are the meeting minutes. They want to know where, exactly where they're going to be 60 minutes from now. When you go into one of these 
open-ended question sessions that's one hour long. You have no idea where you're going to be or what you're going to learn. You need someone curious that just wants to learn more about what these people think. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So step four is those contextual interviews of the mix and uncovering in the process some of their unmet needs. And how many mix do you want involved in this? Twelve. Twelve. So there'll be six pairs. Okay. So so you only need six interviews, 12 people. Exactly. Yes, but Dick, 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 you can't, you can't do that. I mean, that's not statistically representative. But, well, we're not playing a game of statistics. We're not. We're playing a game of trying to uncover insights. And we know that this kind of qualitative research can do that with low number of people. And exactly. you and I are not the only ones saying that. We, we, this is quite credible. The, the first time we went through this was with Chevron, with asset managers, people who had P&L responsibility for oil fields around the world. Mm-hmm. And we interviewed 25 people, but we learned in interviewing those 25 people that after we'd gone through five or six of these um, interviews with pairs, we weren't learning anything new. We'd heard it all before. I think I mentioned this to you when we talked last time that, and I mentioned this on the podcast recently too, because I just learned about the turnaround at Gatorade and the woman who led that. And when Gatorade started selling more products to athletes uh, and Gatorade wasn't doing well at the time. That whole initiative was based on interviews with 12 high school athletes. Um, there you go. And, I didn't know about it, that. It doesn't take uh, too many people to get some new insights. Exactly. So we, we've kind of skipped through step three, which some companies don't do. Chevron is one, where you do an as-is, you develop an as-is value curve. So you try and put yourself in the most important customer's shoes and develop the value curve. So what do I think is going to be important to that most important customer? What do I think would be the order of importance of those uh, attributes and so on? The reason why I like doing this before step four is for the lead interviewer, it's good to have that value curve up on the side of their computer so that when somebody starts talking about some aspect of an attribute, you can see the value curve. Mm-hmm. Aha, you know, they're starting to drive to something that we've thought about. Okay, that makes sense. So, if, if you want to reduce the number of steps, getting rid of step three is one of the ways to do that. Yeah, I, I personally like that activity of thinking through generating the value curve and you know, those classic elements of blue ocean in terms of what's here that we can increase that provides more value. What can we decrease that actually provides more value? What can we add? What can we take away? And it gives us a very nice, clean picture of the actual elements of value to the customer. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute. This episode of The Everyday Innovator is brought to you by Product Innovation Educators, your one place for online training to make the move from product manager to product master. When you enroll in one of our online courses, it's like having Chad McAllister as your personal coach. In each course, you get video lessons, added resources, and a private community for collaboration with other product managers and innovators. And, of course, you get direct access to Chad, who will answer your questions and get you heading in the right direction. Past students tell us the concepts, practices, and tools are valuable, but the real benefits they gain are being more confident, increasing their influence in their organization, and generating greater success for themselves and their company. There are four levels of training to become a product master. Find your level now. Get started by going to the everydayinnovator.com forward slash master. 
your one place to become a product master. TheEverydayInnovator.com forward slash master. Don't wait. Get started now. So we got our develop as is value curves. And yes. we've done our contextual interviews, the first round, six interviews, 12 people. This must take us to step five, which you have called develop the 2B value curve. Exactly. To develop the 2B value curve. So we, we had an as-is value curve for those who did a step three. We've heard the, we've identified unmet, unarticulated needs from 12 most important customers. And now we're going to develop the 2B value curve. Remember, the definition of value innovation is to deliver exceptional value to the most important customer in the value chain. Six questions are now going to help us define what do we need to do to bring greater value to those most important customers. So, an example of the, the six questions. What element of performance should we increase the value delivered to the most important customer? What elements of performance should we decrease the value delivered? What elements of performance should we eliminate? So it's a list of that, literally just checks on where we're at and what we should do to deliver greater value. And and the key point here, Chad, is we're talking about what we need to do. We're not getting into how we do it. Right. But but we're identifying, you know, this is the early part of an ideation activity for any kind of, of product improvement or new product, which is what creates value for the customer. Exactly. And as an example, I've heard you talk about before, if you were to design a new airport for the frequent business traveler, you know, yes. what would increase value to me at having been a frequent business traveler before, you know, getting through security. So if you can decrease my time to get through security, that would add value. Exactly. And the average distance that an international traveler walks to get from the point that they checked in a bag, assuming they did, to the point they get on the jetway getting onto their plane is 2.2 kilometers. So another one is reduce the distance between check-in mm-hmm. and the plane. Right. right now, we have people walking around airports. We don't have planes moving around the airports to make it much more customer-friendly, which I think we could do. An example of something like that is Dallas. I think the DFW airport's a classic example of how you can, in fact, take steps in that direction. Because of the train system? Well, because of the train system and the circular. So Mm -hmm. there are, what, eight, ten gates uh, in each one of the circles? Yeah, it's like a cul-de-sac on a street, right? There you go. It's a a cul-de-sac setup. Right. So you're not when you get off the train, you're not walking very far to get to your point. Yep, you get a lot of planes around around the end of a terminal. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so we got our our two B value curve based on going through those you know blue ocean inspired questions. What what can we increase, decrease, eliminate? Ex- exactly. Yes. Step six that leads us now into step six and seven. I'm not quite sure where why we have six and seven. We could probably collapse that into one and just make it six. Therefore, we could reduce the number of steps to nine which most engineers would say, yes, let's do that. <laughs> and then if we eliminated three, now we'd be down to eight. Wouldn't this be fantastic? Look at the progress we're making during this interview. Wow. I know, I know. But the So in six and seven, what we're doing now is without showing the most important customers the to-be value curve. And the reason why you don't show them is you've only got one hour 
to ask them questions like this. In our first round interview, we heard you talk about the following attributes, ease of use, for example. And as you talked about ease of use, our definition of ease of use is this. Do you agree with that definition? And if you don't, what should we change? So we haven't shown them the value curve, but we've shown them the elements that make up the value curve. In listening to you, we concluded that the order of importance of those attributes to you was ease of use was number one. A quality was number two. Uh, who knows what three could have been? Uh-huh. Could be price. Uh, but typically, there are going to be 12 to 15 elements. What we do is to show them a list of those attributes and say, in terms of an order of importance to you, is this order correct? And if it isn't, what would you move up, make more important, and what would you move down and why? The third question we ask them is, we have ascribed metrics to ease of use. By the way, when you just talk ease of use, to have one metric for ease of use is tough. But if you have a what we call a nested value curve that breaks down ease of use into its fundamental parts, you can wrap metrics around those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so are you, in that third question, are you verifying what you described as the metrics for? So, so well, yes, we're, to verify the metrics, yes. We, we have used the following metric to define this attribute. Do you agree with that? And if you don't, what would you change? So the step six, seven combination here is another round of contextual interviews to verify your the creation of this 2B value curve. Yes. And it enhance true. it so it aligns with what our most important customer actually thinks of in terms of value. Yes. It's getting very, very specific. There are two other questions we ask them. Okay. What is the value being delivered to you today on a one to nine scale where one is very, very low, nine is exceptional? What is the value being delivered to you today with our products or competitive products? You may not even have a product or a service out there being delivered to you today on that one to nine scale. And if you now move the needle forward to 12 months or 24 months or three years from now, what would you like the value to be delivered then? And I'm not going to allow you to say, well, I want nines on all 12 because we can't do that. We want you to realistically think about where can we increase the value to you that we would say, aha, you're now delivering exceptional value to us. That that would be sufficient enough. And are you asking that question for each of those elements of performance that you pulled out? Yes. Now, maybe not the bottom five, but certainly the top five or six. Yes. Okay. The the ones that we believe are most important. Yes, exactly. So the output from step six and seven, okay, is eight as is and 2B value curves with metrics vetted by 12 most important customers. And those 2B and as is value curves tell us what we must do to deliver this exceptional value. What have you got to do? Chad, can you imagine being in this balmy world of now knowing what we've got to do to deliver this exceptional value? Right. So, so up to this point, this is really all about trying to understand from the customer's perspective, what are the specific elements, the performance elements that they need in a product or service to create value that they actually want? Exactly. Okay. 
So we end up with this as is, the value curve, which is this is the current state of what is available for this, this MIC, this most important customer. And a 2B value curve, based on what we've learned through these contextual interviews, this is what they would like to see in terms of the performance elements and increases in value that would make a real difference to them. And in the process, performance elements that we probably realize that aren't important to them that we can take out of our our value curve or or decrease. It's unfortunate when the first videotape recorders, you're old enough, I think, to remember what they were like. Yes, yes. We we, we had the Betamax and and the the VHS standard. So you had these huge machines with buttons and knobs and dials and goodness knows what else. And you looked at this thing and said, how do I turn it on? (laughs) Uh, how do I record? And you look at this thing and say, there's no way. There's no way I can figure this out. Right. So the engineers had a field day and put everything on that box that you could imagine you could possibly want. And and the result was, ugh. You look at videotape recorders today and they are extremely simple. And they're getting harder to find now too. Exactly, exactly. I don't know if we should go back to the original 10-step process. Right now, we're looking at the tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess before we go on step nine, once we know what we've got to do, now the team, along with other subject matter experts inside the company, says, okay, this is what we've got to do. How could we do that? What are our options? And there are a whole series of tools, and you've talked about these in many podcasts that you do from brainstorming and trees and pattern mapping and reinvention workshops and a whole series of things you can do. There are a great set of tools mm-hmm. to, in fact, come up with these ideas on how we can deliver the what. Yeah, now we're getting, we're not doing the actual product development yet. We're not executing that. But we are doing the design work in some sense here, right? And this is where we probably need to bring other cross-functional disciplines in and have our engineering development team contribute to this idea. You've made a very important point, which I did not make, shame on me, that we haven't sent anybody to a laboratory. We haven't sent any software designers to come up with some new software. Everything that we're doing in this process is the front end. Exactly. We want to get the front end defined correctly before we start going into Agile or StageGate or any one of those. And this is the essence of the problem that Lean Startup tries to solve too, right? Which is we end up creating the wrong product and that creates no value for customers and it wastes a lot of resources. And this process of value innovation walks us through understanding clearly what actually provides value to a customer and then, of course, we now at step nine, we need to figure out, knowing what we need to do, how do we actually accomplish that, right? We, we start the design work in, in essence. Yes, I, I, I've never talked to Eric Reese, author of Lean Startup. Mm-hmm. My advice and counsel to Eric would be, do this before you get into Lean Startup. We, we want to understand in some, some set of tools what we have to do to provide value to the customer. Exactly. Okay. So step nine, determine how to deliver the, the, the what, what the, the, these, these performance elements. Okay. Yes. And, and I've seen clients become super sophisticated on this. They'll show that they've got great uh, designers who show you graphics and they'll ask you to critique them. We work with one company 
up in Minnesota where they were looking at 25 different approaches to do a better job at storing musical instruments used by bands, huh. high schools and universities. Uh-huh. It was incredible stuff. And they got a top five out of these 25 from this one-hour interview, which was carried out in step 10. So we started off at one, define project mission objectives. We've gone around. So we're going to go back to now step 10. We are now going to go back to those same six pairs of most important customers and share with them the output from nine and have them critique the how. Now, some companies, in fact, I'll even change many companies don't want to do this. And they don't want to do it because they're concerned that what they're doing is showing their hand of what the future might look like. And they're concerned about how this information may land up in the hands of competitors. And one way around that is to sign NDAs. And we have not seen in the instances where we did this, where anybody came back and said, no, we won't do that. Okay. So people recognize that there's an issue here and they are prepared to sign NDAs. And you construct the step 10 to, to confirm you know, what, what we came up with in step nine, the how we're going to deliver this. Also in the same six interview format? Same, the same six pairs, yes. Yep. So pair, the first pair in uh, the fourth, sorry, step four, that same pair is going, they, they've been involved in six and seven, and they're also involved in 10. So if you think uh, that, for example, typically you could get through these 10 steps in 12 weeks, about that kind of time frame, some companies don't come close to that because of all the things that get in the way. But if you do this in 12 weeks, uh, those uh, pairs of most important customers have become involved in the process, and mm-hmm. they're, they're getting excited about what the future holds for that and the new stuff that could come down. Good. So they're, they're saying, well, this is so bloody obvious. Let's get on with it. Now it's time to make the product real. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But, but now we have actual real information to know that we're building the right product. Exactly. And, and this is where we waste a lot of resources. We build the wrong product. And the building part takes much more typically time, but much more cost is involved in that than anything we've talked about up to this, uh, up to this point. Yes. Yeah. This is, this is low investment. And, and the, the beauty of doing the telephone interviews is rather than having people track around the globe to interview two most important customers at a location, which mm-hmm. by the way, is extremely difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Even in England, for example, you get somebody, a most important customer in the North and somebody in the South we've got to find a location where we could meet with the two of them. And that's inconvenient to them. So we don't wrap travel expenses around this mm-hmm. uh, because we're doing this using ready talk. We can record this. There's a whole issue of analyzing the output from step uh, four is critically important. And you sure. do that by transcribing uh uh, the recorded interviews into a .docx file, and those are typically 25, 30 pages long. So imagine 150 pages worth of text around the answers to those open-ended questions in that board. That's a huge amount of information, and it takes time to do that analysis. It does. And having done a lot of qualitative analysis like that, you know, trying to find pull out the key themes and support for what you need to do in terms of the performance elements, it takes time to do that. But 
that's also yeah. gold. There, there's, you know, it, it's a mass of information to give you clear insights into what to do next. And through this process, we're, we're confirming back then with these most important customers what our plans are and knowing from their perspective that we're on the right track. And if not, right, I, I'm sure sure there must be some times when we, you have done this and there was the how was investigated. Here, you know, here, here's the design for our proposed solution. And you confirm that with the mix and you find out that might not be the direction that they were thinking that you would want to go in. Exactly. One of the actions you could take at the end of uh, step 10 is we're killing this project. We cannot right. deliver value in a meaningful way to most important customers. Right. That's great news too. It is. You know, and, and I've been on uh, the one project that comes to mind that we had a solution and we had our mix and the answer was the mix were unwilling to pay for what the solution would you know, reasonably cost. Yes. Okay, good. So let, let's kill it and move on to the next opportunity. And next, another outcome of this is because these 12 most important customers have got uh, into this, you're probably going to identify four or five people who have been standouts in this interviewing process. And before you sign off, you say, you know, what we're going to do is we are going to move forward on this project. We'd like to set up an advisory board where we bring advisory board members into a location. We wine and dine you on the first night, and then we spend the day reviewing where we're at in our project. We may do that once every six months, every 12 months. Mm -hmm. Would you be interested in doing that? And again, we haven't had a single person say no. Yeah, because you're, you're building up some investment, some commitment from them along the way. And and what better people to be part of the advisory board than the ones who helped? They're, they're bought in at this point, and they want to see the solution succeed. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, they're, they're, they're with you. They're not mm -hmm. against you. They're with you. They, they understand how we got where we were. And yeah, they, they want to do everything they can to move this thing along. Excellent. One question I want to just follow up with you on, is on these contextual interviews because so much of this process relies on the information learned in these contextual interviews and people do these in different ways. So you have found that it works best to have two, two mix involved, right? Two, two of your customer side people involved, the most important customer makes no difference whether they know each other or not. You're just getting some crosstalk between them. I imagine that creates new, more valuable insights than doing what might be a more traditional one-on-one -on -one interview. Yeah, you put your finger on one plus one equals three. So interviewee one says something that interviewee two hadn't even thought about, and they'll build on that. So, you know, Harry is right. He's absolutely right. And then I would add the following comments. So uh, you're kind of twisting between on this. When we first went into this, we thought we would be guilty of poisoning the well. So that when interviewee one answers the question, interviewee two's mind now is, is perturbed by what he heard from or she heard from one, that's not been our experience. It's been much more of a building exercise than, than poisoning the well. Mm -hmm. If you like, Chad, what this is is a focus group, but it's a focus group of two. Remember, we have one hour. We're asking six questions, and we're, we're directing these questions to each of these individuals. So if we can carry out this process where I'm, if I'm the lead interviewer, I'm talking less than five minutes of the hour, mm -hmm. it means that somewhere between 22 and 23 minutes, these two people are talking. 
you think of a standard focus group with maybe 15, 20 people, which is one hour long, you divide that 60 minutes by the number of attendees, 20, the maximum amount of time that anybody can talk is three minutes. Right. It's getting down to the point of being tweet-like. There's no way that you can expect to dig out the detail that we can get from a focus group of two. Mm-hmm. And many of us in, that have done market research are not fans of focus groups. Uh, there's a few people listening that would say, well, I certainly am, you know, especially in consumer uh, goods and the like. But I find you can get much deeper insights through direct interviewing one-on-one. In your case, the one-on-two seems to be work, working quite well. You also know I'm a fan of ethnographic research uh, uh, doing user observations. You have found these contextual interviews to work quite well without any other kind of market research tool involved, right? Without doing the ethnography, and in a sense, you've done the ethnography in a different way. So if we're talking to a most important customer, let's take the example of AppliCare, which you're familiar with, site dressing change kits. We're interview, interviewing healthcare professionals who are the most important customers. When we ask them questions about ease of use, opening packages or whatever it is, you're carrying out an ethnographic study in the sense that they've been working with these things, multiple packages a day uh, for 10 years. You're taking advantage of that experience in asking them the questions that you are. I don't have to go see them open a package. Right. And in the process of them kind of telling you the story of how this works, Bringing people back to story and sharing their experience with a specific instance is in a way of doing a, a user observation in the sense that you're getting them to relive the story. Yes. Okay, good. So remember Ed Wolf was on our last uh, podcast? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From Caterpillar Trimble Control Technologies. They do a lot of ethnography. So we'll go out and visit a site and look at the installation of some new control system on a piece of equipment, picket, a bulldozer, or truck, or whatever, uh, the experience that they have is just that experience. And the problems that are surfaced may be unique to that experience and not applicable to other experiences. So you may have to do multiple visits. And to me, that's all adding costs. You've got people who actually have to travel. They have to go to the location. Travel is not cheap. Uh, and you got to do it multiple times. So again, the focus group of two really does cut down on cost and time. And it's a nice, clean process. And people that don't know what questions to ask, this process gives you those questions. Exactly. People that want to know more about this, you have some other resources available. So let, let's uh, talk about those real quick. There's a book that talks about some of this information. It does a good job of telling people why this is a really good process and then some insights into how to use it. Yes. In fact, uh, Chad, if you go back up and look at the other graphic with the most important customer at the center of that graphic, that graphic, in fact, is the centerpiece of the front cover of a book published in 2012 called Value Innovation Works. And that process that you see is a simplified version of the 10-step process. And it conveys the importance of focusing on your most important customer. So we have a book, Value Innovation Works, been out for five, uh, now it's going to be six years. Uh, It basically provides to readers of Blue Ocean Strategy the process that they don't have in Blue Ocean Strategy and some 
key tools uh-huh. that they won't find in Blue Ocean Strategy either. And that is called Value Innovation Works. And the subtitle is Move Mountains, Deliver Sustainable, Profitable Growth, Deliver Exceptional Value to the Most Important Customers in Your Value Chains, a high how-to guide. But it's available through Amazon. We also have a website, www.valueinnovations.com. And there are, we don't blog as much as you do, but there are a hundred blogs on that website. So when you go to the homepage, you'll see toolbar at the top and blog will be some, I think it's the first, it's the far, close to the far right. You click on that and there are all kinds of stories, examples of people that have used the value innovation process, people that haven't and should have and all the rest of it. So there's a lot of information there. You can learn a lot from looking at those blogs. So good resources at valueinnovations.com. And you also provide workshops and you also, you manage these efforts for companies and all that information also found at valueinnovations.com. Yes, exactly. Yes. So we do workshops, we'll do consulting projects, we'll work, we'll go through the 10 steps of the value innovation process with clients. So John Chataway, for example, who was on our last podcast, we went through that uh, with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the rental market in, in the UK. And I thought that the outputs from that would be we will make changes to a basic machine, the Bobcat skid steer, actually it was a, a compact track loader, and the attachments. And what came out of those interviews was that was not what was required. Huh. And, and I won't share what was required, but it had nothing to do with product and attachments. Sounds like something simpler. It's uh, a simpler, uh, well, I don't know that it's necessarily simpler, but it, it, it affects and impacts how you market your products. We're getting into the whole area of Marcom and mm-hmm. digital video marketing and those kinds of things, which you, in fact, can carry, you can deliver results much, much faster than you can by coming up with a new attachment for a podcast. Yeah, and that's something this process can help us figure out, too. Then there's a, you can email me at dick underscore lee at valueinnovations.net or, and I much prefer phone conversations, you can call me on my cell phone number. The international number is plus one seven two zero two nine one zero seven five eight, And we have team members and partners around below 24 today. Good. I appreciate, Dick, you going through the 10 steps. Last time, we, uh, since we did this as a panel discussion last week, I had asked you for an innovation quote, and uh, so I wasn't going to ask you for one again. But because we always have an innovation quote, I was going to share one of my favorite Japanese proverbs, which is simply, fall down seven times, get up eight. And uh, I, I love that quote because it relates, to, in my mind, to innovation so well, because we are going to make mistakes along the way. And in the process, we learn more. And over time, we end up making fewer mistakes because we're used to getting up and knowing what we need to do. And this kind of process helps us to know what we need to do. So thanks, Dick, for sharing it with us. Uh, Chad, thank you. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks for listening. Find the summary of the discussion with Dick and those all-important diagrams that we refer to in the discussion at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 167. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.